Welcome to Clinical Pearls. I am Tracy White. I'm here with my co-host, BJ Hamakuli. BJ, it's great to see you. Good to see you, Steve. So I was wondering if you've ever been out in the community and had to perform CPR. Fortunately not. So that yeah. did happen to me one time at the airport. At the airport? And, yes. Wow. And I was I was a nurse at that time, but a very young nurse, mm -hmm. so starting out. And at the airport, someone fell on the floor and everyone looked at each other mm -hmm. and I was it, oh, <laughs> the only wow. person that um, initially went. So I was doing CPR mm -hmm. and luckily I had the training and um, a doctor came up and asked me if I wanted help. And of course That's I awesome. said, yeah. So we did yeah. CPR together until the ambulance came and the person, you know, we got him to the hospital. Yeah. I'm not sure what happened yeah. after that because I had to go get on my flight after that, but it was quite a harrowing experience. Um, so I'm excited to talk today with our guest about a Stop the Bleed campaign, which is another thing that um, people in the community, healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers, um, can use these techniques to hopefully save a life yeah. if that should ever happen to them. Yeah, so I'm actually very excited to hear about Stop the Bleed campaign. I think it's something that is very much needed in addition to CPR. So we hope our audience uh, can join us and uh, hopefully learn something new about uh, Stop the Bleed. And remember, everyone, please like, share, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Stop the Bleed campaign was initiated by a federal work group convened by the National Security Council staff at the White House. The purpose of the campaign is to build national resilience by better preparing the public to save lives by raising awareness of basic actions to stop life-threatening bleeding following everyday emergencies and man-made or natural disasters. Advances made by military medicine and research and hemorrhage control during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq informed the work of this initiative, which exemplifies translation of knowledge back to the homeland to benefit the general public. Today, we are excited to have our colleague, Dr. Allison Jones here to talk more about Stop the Bleed. Allison is an assistant professor in the UAB School of Nursing with more than 17 years of nursing experience. She currently serves as co-director of the BSN Honors Program and co-director of the Occupational Health Nursing Program. She has been a certified Stop the Bleed instructor since 2017 and has an active program of research in this area. Allison, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So tell us a little more about your background in nursing. Sure. Um, I started as a bedside nurse at the University of Kentucky Emergency Department in 2006, um, and that is a level one trauma center. So we saw the worst of the worst day in and day out. Um, and it was really my passion. That was the only place that I wanted to work. I loved the true emergencies. And, you know, my family kind of makes fun of me for being a little bit of a vampire and loving <laughs> blood, um, having a, a weird fascination with it. But um, it truly is. It's an honor to be there and be able to provide care for those people when they're really in need. Um, so I, I started in that area and then transitioned to graduate school, um, got my master's as a clinical nurse specialist in adult acute care, and then went straight on to my PhD in nursing in 2015. And all of my research has always focused on 
blood in trauma, whether it's um, patient blood management within the hospital or it's the pre-hospital setting and um, bleeding control education. What did you go as for um, uh, Halloween this past Halloween? Were you a vampire or something? <laughs> no, I've actually never dressed up as a vampire. Oh, okay. It's just an everyday thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, awesome. So, um, you know, how did you become interested in this type of work? So this, I, I wasn't aware of Stop the Bleed until I joined UAB in 20, so I came in 2015 and I became aware of the campaign in 2017. And when I started looking into it, it was really because I had that experience of seeing so many lives lost that could have been prevented with bleeding control at the setting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was very, very common that we would um, unfortunately lose patients either en route to the hospital or immediately when they got there because of blood loss. Um, and when I started looking into the campaign here, I realized that it was, you know, being pushed out through the level one trauma centers and UAB has a level one trauma center. Um, and so I contacted the head of acute care surgery, um, Dr. Jeff Kirby, and he has um, past experience as an army surgeon mm -hmm. and is very passionate about Stop the Bleed as well. And so he and I partnered up, worked a little bit with um, the Center for Injury Science here at UAB, and we started um I, I became an active instructor with the campaign and started doing trainings with him and his team. And then from there, I took some initiative and started seeking out grants to really push forward this education into the community. Um, this is a, a free training. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we provide the training for free. A lot of the grant money really goes towards supplying people with um, either training supplies or with the bleeding control kits that they can keep at their at their institution or at their home. I know Dr. Kirby a little a little bit from working at the hospital, mm -hmm. obviously, and what a wonderful resource and someone to partner with. Oh, for this. yeah, he's, so. he's fantastic. And he has been really vocal in terms of advocating um, with politicians and at the legislature for you know better trauma systems better resources that kind of thing that's, that's very important so I, I we know about you know cpr and first aid courses and instruction about that what's the difference between that and a stop the bleed course that, that i could take yeah that's a great question so i think a lot of people are familiar with basic first aid and it's um you know how to respond to someone who's in need right um the difference between CPR and stop the bleed and just basic first aid and stop the bleed is that we're really focusing on educating people on what a life-threatening bleed looks like, how to identify it, and how you can intervene whether you have the appropriate supplies with you or not. Um, so if you think about CPR, that training has really been around since the 1960s. We know a lot about effective methods for um, disseminating that information and getting people trained. And we have been able to see over the years that the transition from, you know, really focusing on mouth to mouth to really like our evidence shows us that the, it's more important to keep the compressions going. Um, and that transition has actually enabled a lot more people and um, 
given a lot more people confidence um, and comfort in providing aid because they are not exposing themselves to whatever potential diseases that person has. We're just asking them to push on their chest. So with Stop the Bleed, what we're trying to get out to people is that even if you can do nothing else but hold pressure on a site, it can have an impact. Somebody can lose their entire circulating blood volume in less than five minutes. And normally it takes a median or an average of six minutes for EMS to arrive at the scene. And that's once they're called. So somebody has to discover that someone's in need, activate the emergency response system, and then wait for EMS to get there. And you can lose a lot of blood in that time frame. Um, So part of part of the the background for Stop the Bleed was identifying that there was a huge number of lives being lost that could have been prevented if someone had been able to perform these these tasks um, and provide aid in that immediate time frame. Um, Unfortunately, with mass casualty events or with um, an an instance where it's a violent setting or um, a crime scene, you have to wait for police to not only secure the scene, but clear it before you can let emergency responders, you know, give aid to that person. And so if we have people who are in the immediate setting um, and we can empower them with these skills and hopefully with some of the equipment, Mm -hmm. then they can they can maybe save a life. So. You know, like you mentioned, CPR has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now with the Stop the Bleed, it's fairly new. Mm-hmm. How can we get this initiative into m- more public settings or become more mainstream than it is right now? It is it is a driving factor of a lot of my work is Correct. how we can get this, this initiative out. Um, so like you said, it's new. It just came out in 2015. Um, and the best thing that we can do is tell people about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I am working with our Deep South Center for Occupational Health and Safety. Um, in my role there is the co-director of the Occupational Health Nursing Program. We do a lot of outreach. Um, so we have worked within um, neighborhoods in Birmingham to provide trainings at the community level. We have provided trainings within different schools across campus. Um, They have been very supportive in sending us to um, the International Rural Nurses Conference, and we've provided training there. So we're really doing anything we can to promote the training. And then, again, part of my grant work and research is trying to figure out best practices for implementing this. Um, We are still trying to to determine the best methods for getting this out and making it effective, making sure people retain their skills. Um, You know, back to CPR, that is regulated by the American Heart Association um, and people are required to um, renew their certification every two years and Stop the Bleed doesn't have that. We don't have any of that evidence that says after a year, after six months, people lose their skills. Um, and so that's another aspect of these grants is following up with people after the initial training to see how well they retain those skills and that knowledge. I was going to ask, uh, is there a certifying body for Stop the Bleed? Like, you know, like you mentioned, CPR has the American Heart Association. 
So the certifying body is um, is the StopTheBleed.org, the Stop the Bleed campaign. And for every training that we do, we collect rosters and we submit those trainings, um, that documentation to StopTheBleed.org. So they, you know, if you're a registered instructor, they ask you to do that. Um, it is not as well regulated or as intensely regulated as American Heart does with CPR. Um, but I think that's that's just in the beginning phases. Yeah. Yeah. You I know? think it's going to change with all I the work that you're doing. Yeah. Yes, I think it's going to change as well. How has the reception been in the public? I guess and before that even, are you introducing it to non-healthcare people yet? Yes. People in the community. And what's that reception been like? Yes. So this this training is specifically targeted for the lay community and for non-healthcare providers. Um, and it has been very well received. I think part of that is, at least in the trainings that I do, I really try to emphasize that while this may have come about from really terrible circumstances, the benefit of it is both its simplicity and its applicability to any situation Mm -hmm. where there's blood loss involved. So people can use this at home if they put their arm through a plate glass window or, you know, if they come on a car wreck or if their child falls on a playground, anywhere that there's blood loss, you can use this training. And so we've had very good reception. Um, I think people I think there's a tendency for people to be a little squeamish mm-hmm. about blood. Um, but once they get into the training, they tell us like, oh, this is so useful. Like, I, I didn't know that you could yeah. do this. I wouldn't have thought about that. And because we talk about not just the methods, but kind of the anatomy mm-hmm. of the body and why it's better to place tourniquets in certain yeah. places and um, and give them a little more background that is beyond just hold pressure. Yeah. Um, which is helpful, but we go a little bit more in depth with that as well. I think part of that is also just that in- initial shock that you know individuals face when they see somebody with a traumatic uh, incident. Right. Uh, right. Do you train them in that as well, and how to manage that uh, as well during this? Um, we do go a little bit into it. It kind of depends on the audience mm-hmm. and what questions they ask, but we we really try to emphasize that we want this to be something where you are comfortable intervening, you have confidence in intervening, and you are safe doing so. Um, so back to CPR, you know, the, the primary thing is that you have to be safe in order to provide somebody else help. And um, we, we really harp on the fact that, like, if it's an unsafe scenario, your safety needs to come first. So if you feel safe, if the person is in a safe spot that you can provide aid, then we want you to feel comfortable doing that. So, you know, as nurses, we love acronyms, mnemonics. Yes. I've been saying this one about, you know, the ABCS of um, um, Stop the Bleed. I know what ABC is, but what is S in in the ABCS of uh, Stop the Bleed? I think that might have just been the ABCs. Oh, the ABCs. That's right. Okay. The ABCs have stopped the bleeding. Yeah. Okay, that's scary. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a, a typo on, on my part. That's funny. Yeah. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't I know. We can make something up. I didn't up. prep for that one. Well, what are the ABCs then? I mean, because we 
we know it for CPR or what it used to be, I guess, airway breathing and circulation. Yeah. But is that the same as it, it's, this? Or? It's very similar. Um, so the A is alert. We want you to alert 911. Okay. Um, and what we always tell people is it's it's great for you to call 911. It's going to be even better if you can give them as many details as possible. So they're going to ask you for a location and it's going to be better to say, I'm in the mezzanine of the School of Nursing. Um, I'm in the bottom floor. Give them as much direction as possible and then stay on the phone with them okay. because they are going to ask questions. And it's it can seem kind of, um, for lack of better terms, annoying to people that like, I just need help. Just send the help. They're going to activate that system and they're going to have people on their way. But the more details that you can give them about the injuries to the person and the status of the person, the better equipped they will be to provide that care immediately when they arrive. The B um, is for identifying the source of the bleeding. Um, so we want you to, to do whatever you can to get a better visualization of the source of the blood loss. Um, so it's not very common that you come upon someone who is just naked and has a source of bleeding. They usually are wearing clothes and it's really hard to tell where that bleed is coming from. So if you're able to remove clothing, then remove it so that you can focus your efforts on the exact source. Um, and then the C is compression. So we want you to either apply pressure with your hands or with the tourniquet, with wound packing, whatever the case is um, that's appropriate for the, the source of the bleed. Okay. So what do you <clears throat> tell people that they can use for a tourniquet if there's not an official tourniquet laying around, which is probably not typically the case. Right, right. Um, so ideally, you know, you have that military grade tourniquet yeah. with you that is going to provide excellent pressure. And I brought one of those here for you guys to look at mm -hmm. and play with if you want to. Um, you can use everyday items, um, cords, belts. We've got lanyards around our neck with our name badges on it, um, straps from a purse, Anything that you can use to wrap around a limb and shoe make string. it tight. You can absolutely use a shoestring. Yeah. A very common question that we get from people is, well, what about the integrity of the skin? Or, you know, I'm worried about um, damaging the skin. And we have to have that crucial conversation that it is a risk versus a benefit. And we are going to risk a little damage to, the, to that tissue mm -hmm. that can heal if that person makes it to the hospital. Okay. You know, we, we need to focus on on controlling that bleed and saving that life for them to develop an infection or to you know develop any skin integrity issues. Um, the other thing that military personnel have done the training with have told us is not just wrapping something around, but also using something like a pen or a writing utensil to twist along with that. And it's not gonna work very well for me to try to describe that. Um, but I think right we can now, visualize but, it. But yeah, you can yeah, visualize yeah. it. You know, if you put a pen into a string and twist, it's mm -hmm. going to help you tighten that even right. more. Yeah. Right. So <clears throat> on that same uh, subject of tourniquets, what are some of the common uh, mistakes that people uh, should avoid um, when applying a tourniquet? Yeah. Um, one of the big things is once you have a tourniquet in place and you either visualize or you can tell somehow that the bleeding has stopped, you need to leave the tourniquet in place. Mm -hmm. 
Um, if you if you can think about a time when you've cut your hand or your you know, somewhere on your body and you put pressure on it and you think, oh, I've held it long enough and I can take the pressure off and then it starts bleeding again. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't want that to happen. So if you have a tourniquet in place and it's controlling bleeding, um, even if you think bleeding is still happening on a smaller level, we want you to leave the tourniquet in place because you're still having an impact. Um, The other thing, it's not a mistake necessarily, but something of note is that tourniquets hurt. Yeah. Um, and that's another common question that we get is, am I going to be inflicting pain on these people? And the answer is yes. But it's also another one of those risk versus benefits where, you know, we want you to do your best to distract them, to talk to them, to reassure them that help is coming. This is going to hurt, but it is necessary right now. Um so I think I think the biggest thing is really if you apply pressure, if you apply a tourniquet, stay there, leave it in place because you risk re-bleeding if you remove it. Do you tell people that's one way to know that you're doing it correctly if your tourniquet's tight enough that it is hurting them a little bit? Yes. Because I would be the kind of, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me loosen it up just a little bit. But right. That is not what you want to do. Right. No, that's a great point. And we do tell people that like it's going to hurt. People are probably going to be screaming in pain. Um and it's it's just kind of the necessary evil right, right. at that point. Um, so do you guys have kits that you um, may supply to individuals that you're training? And in those kits, they come in with gloves and stuff like that? Because mm-hmm. honestly, I think there's some people who are hesitant when they do encounter somebody that they don't know. Um, right. Bleeding or, you know, communicating any source of disease or stuff like that. What advice would you give somebody um, who has that concern? Yes. So what we tell people is that ideally, if you have access to gloves, we want you to use them. If you do not, then it's at your discretion because that goes back to personal safety. Mm -hmm. Um, We do know that the risk of disease transmission is very low if you don't have any open sores or open areas on your skin. Um, and we also tell people that if you do decide to intervene without gloves, then you need to notify emergency responders and make sure that they are able to help you get cleaned off. If you have open sores and they can help you get the care that you need to make sure you get appropriate testing and that sort of thing. Um, but use anything that you can as a barrier Mm -hmm if you have access to it. And if not, that's that's up to you if you feel comfortable intervening or not. You have, but in, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you well, that's, I was just going to address your question about the kits. Um, so you can buy prepackaged personal bleeding control kits and they come with in a variety of, of um, or they come in different varieties, mm-hmm. I should say. You can select ones with scissors versus without okay. for removing clothing or with you know, a military grade tourniquet versus um, just plain gauze mm. or, you know, there's different there's different kinds that you can select. So stopthebleed.org, mm-hmm. you can go online and buy those there. But you can also go on Amazon mm-hmm. and look for bleeding control kits. Um, we, for our grant purposes, we wanted to be able to provide as many kits as possible to as many people. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of bolt bought bulk items and then put our own kits together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to bring the cost down pretty, 
pretty nicely with that. So in our kits, we provide one of the military grade tourniquets. Mm -hmm. We provide a compression bandage. If you think of like an ACE wrap kind of thing. Um, and then what we as nurses know is a Curlex mm -hmm. gauze, but one of those long rolls of gauze. Um, we provide gloves, we provide a Sharpie, which you might not think about, but if you place a tourniquet on someone, it's important to note what time you placed it on them. Um, and I can come back to that in just a minute. Um, and then we also provide kind of a quick reference card that has just the basics on a card that you can visualize something if you need that, that extra help. Um, so, so the, the standard first aid kit does not have this equipment. Correct. So okay. standard first aid kits are likely to have maybe gloves. I'd say that's a, that's up in the air. Mm -hmm. um, regular bandages like Band-Aids, um, maybe some some small gauze. But when you're talking about a life threatening bleed, you're going to need a large amount of gauze, okay. most likely. And the tourniquet. And the tourniquet. If it's if it's a an extremity injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of places or have you noticed that a lot of places are preparing themselves by having these kits? And I'm thinking of my gym, for example, you know, we have an AED. I'm sure they have a first aid mm -hmm. kit, but I'm not sure if we've, you know, gone the next level and, and if yeah. public places are having these kits available in case something does happen. Every once in a while I'll see them and I get very excited when I do. <laughs> um, the goal for this campaign and, and for my work is to really promote anywhere that you have first aid or AED equipment, you should have a bleeding okay. control kit okay. as well. Um, so I know like within the School of Nursing, we've worked really hard to provide those kits and that training to our faculty and staff. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm trying to encourage as much as I can. Um, but I, I don't see it as often as I would like to. I hope that that's going to change. You know, I would think places that I just, you know, think about right now is daycare centers, uh -huh. you know, uh, elementary schools, mm -hmm. you know, kids mm -hmm. get cut all the time. So I think mm -hmm. this is something that we should really uh, push uh, to have in those uh, places. You mentioned something about time. Mm -hmm. um, what is, why is time so important? So time is important in terms of writing it on the tourniquet or writing it on the person uh, so that emergency responders and providers in the hospital setting know how long that tourniquet has been in place. So the current evidence shows us that people can have a tourniquet in place for about two hours before they really start to experience nerve and tissue damage associated with the tourniquet specifically. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it's good for us to know that and for us to tell people in training is that that's a primary concern that people have is, I'm going to lose my arm if you put that tourniquet on. And the truth of it is the loss of a limb is going to be more related to the injury itself versus the tourniquet placement. So we can tell people like, no, you can have this on for two hours without having any direct damage done from it. And that's reassuring to the person. And then that time again is helpful to the providers. Um, unfortunately, if you think of events where you have multiple people who require mm -hmm. tourniquets, if I know that Tracy's had a tourniquet on for four hours and BJ's had one on for 20 minutes, I know that Tracy needs that attention first. Correct. Right. Right. So it's, it's helpful in that aspect as well. Do you have statistics on how effective the Stop the Bleed 
processes? Um, like the training? Like, well, like saving lives, saving limbs. Um, I don't know that I have that right off the bat. I do know from the literature that I've looked at that that the accuracy of tourniquet placement is mm-hmm. one of the measures that they'll look at mm-hmm. right after the training. And immediately after the training, people are between 90 and 100% accurate in oh, placing that tourniquet. Wonderful. There are very few studies about the the accuracy of tourniquet placement, you know, following mm-hmm. training. The ones that I have seen, it ranges from around 40% to around 70% for tourniquet placement accuracy at even six months. And so that's part of, again, it's part of what we want to look at with our research is what's the most effective way of training somebody and how, how often do we need to refresh those skills or give, give some sort of refresher, whether it's sending a video, you know, Hey, review this video, make sure that you're up to date on it or, um, you know, similar to the hospital setting where they have nurses go in and practice CPR every right. so often mm-hmm. just to make sure that they are keeping those skills up to date. Um, we, we need a lot more evidence to support those practices. Right, right. I think you mentioned uh, as we were preparing for the article talk today um, that firefighters, police officers, they're really getting this training now and mm-hmm. it's across the board. Because yes. of the campaign. I think that's really wonderful. I, I think it is too. And um, it's kind of jarring to think like they haven't had it before. The same thing, yes. But, but what I want to make clear is that all firefighters are required to be trained as EMTs mm-hmm. or emergency medical technicians. And through that, they do get yeah, some bleeding so. control yeah. training. What stopped the bleed is, is it's providing an evidence-based standardized training that kind of puts everybody on the same playing field. Um, so in, in Birmingham, for example, I know that our, um, our fire department has just implemented this training across all, all staff and they have been instrumental in helping Birmingham police get training as well. Um, UAB's police force has just recently gone through the training. All of their officers are now carrying tourniquets. Uh, and w- what's really impactful to me is talking to these officers and these staff and hearing the stories mm. that they have said. You know, the um, when I spoke to the Birmingham police force about working with them on on a grant to look at skill retention and implementation of the training, they said they heard almost immediately from their officers that they were using this on site, you know, on the scene of, of crimes or whatever they were responding to. And one officer specifically said he responded to a scene where a toddler was injured and he grabbed one of the toddler's clean diapers to hold pressure. And he said he never would have thought of that if he mm-hmm. hadn't gone through the training. training. Yeah. yeah. So thank you very much for joining us, Allison. Where can our listeners uh, go to get more information regarding the training? Yeah, stopthebleed.org is probably the best one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. Um, they have free videos that people can access, um, and I'm, I'd be happy to provide those links to yeah. you if you want yes. to put them in yeah. show notes. Definitely. Um, and then there's also um, FEMA, or the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has a really kind of lighthearted fun, um, interactive training that's called You Are the Help Until Help Arrives, Mm -hmm. 
that I encourage people to go to and you can get a little certificate after you complete that. Um, but stopthebleed.org will have access to um, classes that are listed in your area. If you are a healthcare provider in some aspect and you are interested in becoming an instructor, you can also register to be an instructor on there once you've completed the training. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then also there's a free app you can download. If you search in your app store for Stop the Bleed, download that app. It is kind of a decision tree wow. tool. So That's you can pull it up and yeah. it'll say, are you in a life-threatening emergency? Yes or no. And it'll kind of walk you through the steps. Okay. Um, so I think that's a very helpful thing for people to have as well. Wow. Thank you. Well, this has been wonderful. And what practical knowledge it is for any of our listeners yeah. uh, to, to, to be prepared for. And hopefully we'll never have to, but having that knowledge could really save some lives. So thank you for all right. the work that you're doing in this area. I think it is really making a difference. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll just end with, you know, the, the final take home message of Stop the Bleed training itself is that the only thing more tragic than a death is a death that could have been prevented. Yeah. And that is really kind of the, the driving force yeah. for me. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Allison, for joining us. And uh, to our listeners, we certainly do hope uh, you got something from today's uh, discussion. Uh, join us next time.